You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, we have been in the Gospel of John now since September of last year. We're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John. And thus far, even though John has mentioned it in Jesus' words and in his teachings a few times, he's mentioned it in chapter 3, he's mentioned it in chapter 7, and again in chapter 8, I have yet to really stop and leverage the teaching of Jesus in John's gospel about the Holy Spirit. But we are this morning in chapter 16, and this is the quintessential sort of centrality of the teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so this morning what we're going to do is I'm going to finish up chapter 15. I'm going to refer back a little bit to chapter 14. We'll walk through chapter 16, and then I want to do some sort of focused, concerted teaching on the Holy Spirit, because nothing could be more immediately pertinent and practical to us. Now, there are three reasons that I want to spend talking about the Holy Spirit this morning. Number one, this is all about what God is doing now, actively, today. It's not so much what he has done, although he has done much. It's not so much that he's going to do, although he will do much. The doctrine and the teaching on the Holy Spirit is all about what God is doing today. Zechariah chapter four, verse six, the second half says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Yahweh Almighty. This is how God does things, is through his Holy Spirit. So that's reason number one. It's all about what God is doing now. Reason number two, it's a matter of life and death. It really is. How's that for a serious start to our sermon this morning? It's a matter of life and death. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, for if you and I live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Something else other than ourselves is required for our own survival. Many of us, if not all of us, go through seasons of life when that's practically not a reality in our lives. We just sort of don't need that. But this is a matter of life and death. Number three, there is power accessible if we will seek him. There's power available by the Holy Spirit if we will but seek him. It is his desire. It is his delight to work in and through us. We're not intended to live this life in our own strength. And the amazing thing about the teaching of the Holy Spirit, which we'll come back to later, is that in this age, God himself could literally not be closer to the believer than he is right now. As a believer, by identity is found and seen by God as in Christ and God's spirit permanently, eternally indwells that believer. God could not possibly be closer in this age and his power is available to those who seek him. So all of this, I hope, is as as practical as it can possibly be so that all of us walk out of here believing something. It's our big idea for the morning, hopefully for this entire lengthy passage that we're gonna walk through. The big idea for the morning goes like this. The spirit is the instrument of the indestructible life. The spirit of God is the instrument of the indestructible life. 
You may be here this morning and you may be thinking, my life doesn't feel very indestructible. But in the eyes of God, despite the circumstances, he has by grace given you an indestructible life and the spirit is the instrument of that indestructible life. So I'm gonna begin reading in John chapter 15 and in verse 18. We didn't finish all of chapter 15 last week where we discussed the crucial criticality of what it means for every believer to abide, to enact their union with Christ. But when a believer in this age enacts their union with Christ, that is when a believer abides, we can anticipate some resistance. And so Chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus still speaking to his disciples in the upper room discourse. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now in our culture, in our context, we usually think of hate as a seething rage or animosity or anger. That's not the biblical idea of hate. Hate, in one sense, is in fact the opposite of love because love is moving one's life toward another. Moving my life toward you because I have a higher degree of concern for your good than I have of mine. And so sometimes hate simply looks like indifference. In the Bible, hatred has the idea of not choosing. We find in the book of Romans that God chose Jacob. He loved Jacob, but he hated Esau, did not choose Esau. He moved his life away from Esau. Despite all of Jacob's deceptions and cheating, God moved his life toward Jacob. So Jesus says, when this world hates you, when this world system that was designed from Genesis 3 and the fall, when Adam threw the keys to our enemy and said, you be vice regent of this world, I'm out on this deal. Then the enemy since Genesis three has been producing and preparing a system of worldliness. So when Jesus says, if this world hates you, it's not the actual planet earth. It is the system of godlessness, of Christlessness that our enemy amplifies and architects. It's going to move its life away from you. It's not for you. And so, right here in the middle of our text, if you're still expecting some sort of encouragement and amplification from this world system and you're not getting it, don't be surprised. This world doesn't operate for you. It is against you. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's always been against me all the way since Genesis chapter three. Verse 19, however, you could compromise. You could sort of just make it easy, choose the path of least resistance. If you were of the world, if you were in that system, the world would love you. It would be for you. And it might feel good, but you would be moving away from God and and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. I have done a thing by grace in your life. I moved my life towards you. I chose you. I have a relationship with you. You are not of the world. You're not. Because I say so, because I love you, and so do not try to continue finding paths of least resistance. That's not the win. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. This is very good news. You're going to receive persecution. 
You're going to receive resistance because I have been with you, but I'm about to go away from you. I have been shielding you, but I'm about to depart. And so you're going to be the full-on recipients of persecution because of the preaching that you're doing. But this is good news. There will be some who will keep your words just as you have kept my words. So we're not going to be totally hopeless as we give the gospel. There will be those who will cling to it. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The worldliness, the world system that opposes Christ might think they know God or of God or the divine or the deity, but Jesus is very clear. They do not know God. They assume by default that they do, but they do not. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now, clearly, Jesus does not mean that him speaking to them suddenly gives them sin. No, no, no. He's talking about the sin of rejecting Messiah. He's not saying that they are sinless, but his coming and preaching has removed their excuse. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates my father, whoever hates me, hates my father also. Again, a very strong, direct declaration of divinity and deity. You hate God, you hate me. Why? Because we are one. There's no gray area here. Jesus is being as direct and as plain as he possibly can. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. To hate Jesus, to reject Jesus, to disagree with who Jesus says he is, is to hate God himself. It's that strong. Now, I know we live in a context that says, hey, can't we all just get along, hold hands, plant trees, and sing folk music? No, Jesus says, we cannot. To hate Jesus, to reject Jesus, is to hate God the Father. Verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It's interesting. Jesus quotes David from Psalm 69. A thousand years earlier, David is lamenting and he's feeling closed in and he's feeling oppressed and he's feeling persecuted and he writes this lament to God. I am oppressed. I am closed in. They hate me without cause for no reason at all. David doesn't even know that the ultimate fulfillment of the psalm that he writes will be utterly fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, of which he is a type, of which he is a foreshadowing. Jesus says, I've done absolutely nothing to make them hate me. Nothing. But this fulfills the scripture. There's no wasted words in the Old Testament. Even things that just sound like, hey, this is David just having a bad, sad day. No, no. Even that is revealing Christ to us. Now, when we read our Bibles, we can read it as simply stories or narratives strung together. But when we begin to read our Bibles and understand, hey, this is pointing us to Jesus. It's fascinating. Jesus himself calls this their law. It's one of the Psalms. But it is God's word in the Old Testament pointing us. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing us to the New Testament. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit, we're introduced to again here at the end of chapter 15, the helper, the paraclete. When he comes, listen to what he will do. I will send you from the Father. And I want you to hear unapologetically, unabashedly, Jesus' triune language here. I am with you, I am God. But the Spirit, who is God, will come of the Father, who is God. 
Jesus has no issue describing that there is one God, one essence, one nature in three persons. It's all nicely summed up here in one verse. He will bear witness about me. The Spirit's job is to make much of Jesus. And, verse 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You're simply going to talk about Jesus, what you have seen, what you experienced, what you have heard. You're just going to say, I don't know about all that, but let me tell you about Jesus, what he has done. And the Spirit bears witness within us and helps us to have this understanding as we proclaim the truth of Jesus. Because the Spirit is the instrument of the indestructible life. So as we abide, part of our enacting our union with Christ is bearing witness about Jesus. And the Spirit amplifies and energizes that activity really shouldn't be a chapter break here because the thought and the discourse continues right into chapter 16, verse one, really should just be one continuous thought. So don't get messed up by chapter 16 starting here. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Not that they're gonna lose their, their salvation, but that they would get discouraged and depart and begin to think, I'm not really sure this is a real deal. This is way harder than I expected it to be. Jesus says, I am setting your expectations accordingly. They will put you out of the synagogues. That's a community excommunication, as it were. When the Jewish leaders say you are out of the synagogue, it's effectively a death sentence. You can't own property, you can't work, you can't do pretty much anything. You are ostracized by the community. They see you walking down the street, they cross to the other side and they cannot speak to you. This is what's going to happen to you. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, well, that's an encouraging leave there, Jesus. In fact, all of the disciples, all of the apostles, including Paul, accepting John will die violent deaths because of the gospel. They will think they are offering service to God. They will think they are doing that which is righteous. They will think they are doing what they are supposed to be doing religiously. They will be misunderstood, or they will, be, they will have misunderstood themselves. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They claim to know God, they do not know God. And they will act this way in unrighteousness. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I am setting your expectations accordingly. Things are about to get bad, and now I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna turn around. But I want you to expect that, I want you to plan on that, I want you to prepare for that, so that you won't be surprised. He continues at the end of verse four. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I didn't give you all this heavy teaching, but in a mere hours, I'm going to go to my own death. And when I leave, you're gonna be the recipients of the full brunt of resistance and persecution. Verse five, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? Jesus can see on their faces, they're so disturbed, they're so upset at his upcoming departure that that's all they can think of. And no one bothers to ask him this time, wait a second, where are you going again? How's it gonna happen? What's the deal? Jesus says, you're so upset, you're not even bothering to ask me what's going on. Verse six, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And Jesus knows this. And it's interesting. Jesus doesn't completely clarify and explain this all away. He's a good teacher. He knows that in a matter of days, all of this will become totally and completely clear to them. 
Nevertheless, verse seven, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Remember the whole theme of chapter 14 was that Jesus goes to make preparations himself. He's going to ready his body so that his disciples, his followers, and thereby extension us can be found for all eternity in Christ. And Jesus says, if I don't go, the spirit can't come. The helper can't come. Now, does that mean that there's this weird cosmic force field that as long as Jesus is here, the spirit can't come? Like, I would come now, but Jesus is there. I guess I'll just have to wait. No, of course not. The spirit has always been present on the earth. What Jesus is saying is, I have to go and make preparations. The spirit cannot indwell a person who is not in Christ. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God comes upon different people at different times, but only temporarily and only for a season for a task. Jesus says, I have to go away to make preparations to prepare the rooms in my Father's house because Christ is the only one acceptable to God. And so for the Spirit to indwell a person, that person must be in Christ. I have to go, I have to make preparations so that you can be in me so that then the Spirit can come and indwell you. Verse eight, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then Jesus is gonna give us a three-point outline here. The Spirit's gonna have a ministry. He's gonna convict the whole world of sin. Now, nobody in our world, then or now, believes that they're absolutely perfect and flawless and without error. But people have a default understanding that, yeah, even though I've made a few bad mistakes and I've got a few red X's on my record, I have way more gold stars and I'm actually acceptable in God's sight. And Jesus says, now the Spirit's going to reveal to people the extent and the widespread nature of sin, that it fills everything. Even their good and moral and righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. So the Spirit will have to change people's mind about what sin is. But not only that, Verse nine, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Those who put Jesus to death believed they were doing so in righteousness. They thought it was the right thing to do, as is evidenced by the fact that they hanged him on a tree, a curse of shame. They thought that was righteous, but Jesus says, no, the Spirit will convince them that that was not righteous. I am the righteous one. His resurrection is his vindication that God says, oh, I'll show you righteousness. I will raise this one from the dead whom you put to death. You thought it was righteous. It was wicked. This one is righteous. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It's going to look like God has lost. It's going to look like Jesus loses at the cross but the Holy Spirit will change people's minds and say, no, what looked like an apparent defeat is actually a victory. It is David cutting off the head of Goliath with his own sword. God will kill death with death. And so the Spirit convicts and convinces people of what judgment actually is. The cross was a judgment not, not that God has lost, but that Satan has been defeated and disarmed. We see that in Colossians 2.15. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus recognizes and realizes that his time in his earthly ministry is a mere hours away from being finished. And he has a lot of things he still could teach them, but he cannot. Why? Because he's not that good of a teacher? No, because they can't yet bear it. Why can't they bear it yet? 
because he has not been resurrected because the spirit has not come. They're not able. I've heard people read these things and go, gosh, those dumb, dumb, dumb disciples. Why didn't they get it? Why didn't, we're so much smarter now. I go, well, we have the completed canon. We have the resurrection of Jesus. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that's a thing that they didn't have. So let's, let's be fair to these disciples. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he, this is bad grammar and good theology. <laughs> the spirit, by definition, by grammar, is a neuter word, meaning it has no gender to it. It's, it's the spirit. It's, it's not feminine, not masculine. And yet, here in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he, John is not making an accident here. He's using a personal pronoun. That's incredibly important. And entire denominations are built on the misunderstanding of this one verse. When the Spirit comes, He, we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. What will He do? He will guide you into all the truth. And this is Jesus speaking to His disciples saying, hey, when the Spirit comes, He's gonna guide you into all the truth. Not some truth so that you have to figure out the rest on your own. Oh, no, no, no. The Spirit comes. He's going to tell you what you will write. You will write the New Testament and it will be sufficient. It will be complete. It will be authoritative. It will be inspired. It will be that which you need because it's all the truth. There may be some things that Jesus or that the Spirit does not reveal to his disciples, that's fine. That's not all the truth that is required. A massively important verse, one of the reasons we are a Bible church, because we believe what this Bible says. The Spirit has come and has revealed all required truth to these disciples. We have the New Testament perfectly fulfilling, completing the Old Testament. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He proceeds from the Father and he speaks that which is true. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, will, he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, Jesus unapologetically speaks in triune terms. All that the Father has is mine. The Spirit will tell you about what I am doing. Jesus has no problem with the fact that there are three persons in the Godhead Trinity. Well, verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Jesus is here talking about his upcoming death, his burial and his resurrection. And they're confounded. They don't get it. They are not yet illumined by the Holy Spirit. So verse 17, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. You gotta remember, this is John writing this some 50 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And this has got to be amusing to him sitting in Ephesus some 50 years later going, oh yeah, we were so dim. But the resurrection hadn't happened. The spirit had not yet come. This is why John, I think, gives us so much detail in this conversation. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And then Jesus gives one of his sayings, truly, truly, I say to you, a solemn oath, you will weep and lament. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but this is Jesus who is God, who knows that sorrow is coming and he does not protect them from it. 
That's very instructive. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus understands that they're going to experience sorrow. They're going to experience pain. They're going to lament. They're going to weep. The world's going to rejoice because it's going to look to the world like they've won. But, Jesus says, it'll turn into joy. And then Jesus gives this beautiful, beautiful illustration. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Now, is that completely true? <laughs> Ladies, keep your hands down. I suspect you still recall that time a Buick LeSabre came from your body. I get it. So Jesus is not saying that it just ceases to exist and like it never happened. He's saying comparatively, in perspective, in relation, the joy of a human being has been born into the world far exceeds and surpasses the joy and the sorrow and the pain and the anguish. It's interesting to me that Jesus uses this as an example because pain in childbirth is a part of the curse of Genesis 3. There is pain in judgment. And Jesus will go himself and experience pain in judgment as the personification and the recipient of the full weight of the curse. But even though it produces pain and sorrow and anguish, it will produce joy. There will be a new life that is presented, that is produced, just like Christ's work on the cross. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You'll have temporary suffering and it'll be heavy. You will weep, you will be sad and it'll be deep, but your joy will come and it'll never be taken from you. It's as C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, A Grief Observed. The pain and the sorrow now is a part of the happiness and the joy then for all eternity. Now, let me just say pastorally, I've talked to many of you after last week's message in John chapter 15 and all the hurts and all the sorrows, the sufferings, the trials, the tribulations that you're going through, I know there is pain. But take it from this passage, the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the sadness that we experience now is actually a part of the joy and the happiness that we will experience for all eternity. Think rightly about your life. Verse 23, Jesus says something astonishing. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Again, a solemn oath. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Why? Because in this age, God the Father looks at you with the exact same affection and joy and pleasure and attention as he looks at Jesus, his own son, because you are in Christ and his spirit is in you. We don't have to ask Jesus. We approach the throne of his grace with confidence, does that mean Jesus no longer intercedes for us? Of course it doesn't mean that. Of course he still intercedes for us. But we pray to the Father in Jesus' name that our will will be congruent with his and when that occurs, God will always grant our wish. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Last week we talked about that Jesus' prerogative his project is that we would enjoy our joy with the joy of Jesus 
How do we practically get that into an individual life? By prayer. When we are mindful that we are not coming to God and disturbing him, bothering him, that he's disappointed and disinterested, and we go, God, I'm sorry, it's me again. I'm sorry, it's me again. Let's, I, yeah. if, do you have a second? But, that is a lie from your enemy. Instead, we go to God and say, my God, my God, you have not forsaken me because you love your son and I am found in him and you love me more than I will ever recognize fully. And so I pray these things that they would be your will because I want to know your will. And then when we see God begin to answer those prayers, our joy is infectious and it erupts and it consumes us that's God's will for your life that you pray God's will and that he does his will in and through and with you and that you see it and you go oh my goodness God is at work even in the likes of me it's an astonishing humbling grace verse 25 I have said these things to you in figures of speech the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. I have had to veil some of these things because the resurrection hasn't happened, because the Spirit is not yet indwelling, and so I've had to speak these ways. But there's coming a time when I will speak to you directly and plainly. In that day, and I take that day to mean in 50 days at Pentecost, what Pentecost means, when the Spirit of God comes and permanently indwells disciples and believers of Jesus Christ. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father. There's a claim of deity and have come into the world a claim of humanity. He is both God. He is both man. 100% God, 100% man, Jesus himself says so. And now, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Aha, his disciples said. Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. We observe, we confess that you are omniscient and that you are above reproach. Nobody has anything to hold against you. And do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus says, really? Do you now believe? Well, I guess we'll see. Because the shepherd will be struck and you will be scattered and every single one of you will run. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. God the Father is with Jesus. All the way up until the moment when on the cross, even the Father forsakes the Son. But he will rise again. Fellowship with the Father will be restored. Forty days after that, Jesus will ascend and the Spirit will come. The Spirit gives all truth. Oh, it's amazing. You look at the book of Acts chapter three. Peter, he who had denied Christ three times, who was the one who we think who probably cut the, the servant's ear off in the garden. Peter, who gets it wrong so serially. When the Spirit comes, Peter stands on Temple Mount in Solomon's colonnade and he preaches boldly and he references eight different Old Testament texts accurately that the Spirit now gives illumination to that Peter is preaching powerfully. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We should expect it. In other words, our suffering, our trials are not the parentheses in our happy life. No, 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 no. 
those short little seasons of happiness and prosperity and peace, those are actually the parenthesis. Enjoy them. But the normative experience is to have resistance because this world is opposed to our God. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Feel deeply. Think rightly. I have overcome the world. Oh, it looks like I've been overcome, but I have overcome the world. I go to my death. I will be buried. I will rise again. I will ascend. I will send the Spirit. So, this passage, we learn a lot about the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is the instrument of the indestructible life. Let me just see if I can quickly apply this with some practical teaching on the Holy Spirit. There are essentially three distinct ages of God's revealed presence throughout the scriptures. There is creation to first advent in which we see God as a oneness, a sovereign monarch, he is father. And then we see Jesus' earthly ministry, God as the Son. But since Acts chapter 2, we have God as Holy Spirit indwelling eternally and permanently every single believer. But these different uh, revelations of God's presence are not modes of God. They're not different transformations that he goes through. Old Testament Jews had the responsibility to know that Yahweh was Father, People of Palestine and the ancient Near East and the earthly ministry of Jesus had a responsibility to know that he was divine, that he was God's son, that he is Messiah. But people now have a responsibility to know that God is Holy Spirit because Jesus himself is not bodily present. So some things that the Holy Spirit is not. I want to be as crystal clear as I possibly can be. The Holy Spirit is not signs and wonders. He is not exotic. He is not experiential. He is not on our schedule so that we can call him down every Sunday at 1127 on the mark. Get ready, go, spirit fall. It, he's God. He doesn't follow my Franklin planner. He is not a dove. We see at Jesus' baptism, he's not a dove. He's not the female side of God. He's not the incarnation of Mary or vice versa. He is not the force as in Star Wars. I love Star Wars, it's awesome. That's not the Holy Spirit. George Lucas is not a Christian. Stop it, save your emails. He's not the angel of the Lord. And so, point number one about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not an impersonal force. He is a person. Ancient theologian Arius, he taught that the Holy Spirit was the energy or the exertion of God. That is wrong. He is another counselor in the same type that Jesus was. He is a person. In verse 17, he says, you know me, you know him. I am with you, he is with you. As much as Jesus is a person, so is the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, we see that he is a teacher in his own right, just like Jesus. Chapter 15, he is the helper, the paraclete, who comes alongside and offers counsel. In chapter 16, he is active in the world now, revealing truth. Second point, the Holy Spirit is God. He is not a creation of God. When it says that he proceeds from the Father, it's not that the Father cooked him up. The Spirit has always existed. He is God. When in Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira lie about their money, they drop dead. And Peter says, why have you lied to the Spirit? Why have you lied to God? Peter calls the Holy Spirit God in Acts chapter five, and he's always been around. The Spirit is that which is active in our lives today. Love this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, before we can be filled with the Spirit, 
The desire to be filled must be all-consuming. It must be for the time the biggest thing in the life, so acute, so intrusive, as to crowd out everything else. The degree of fullness in any life accords perfectly with the intensity of true desire. Meaning what? Meaning this. We have as much of God as we actually want. Now that's convicting and that's true. But it brings up the third point in this teaching from John 16. It goes like this. Don't waste the pain. Don't waste the pain. In this life, despite all our glory as a creature made in God's image, our species is relatively basic. Essentially, we want to stop pleasure and we want to increase or stop pain and increase pleasure. That's kind of just what we're all about as a, as a species. And because of that, most of us have a tendency to arrange our lives accordingly. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but God loves us so much that he will not allow us to stay in that rut because that's precisely where we miss him. If all we're concerned about is stopping pain and increasing pleasure, we miss our God. So what this passage is reminding us of is that God cares more about our eternal delight and joy than we care about our immediate delight and joy. God has in mind our eternal, ultimate, never-ending peace and delight and joy, and he cares more about that even than we care about our immediate joy and pleasure. The very best thing we can have in this life now is him. And so God allows the things of a fallen world to sting us, to harm us temporarily so that we will turn our hearts and our minds to him. And so thinking rightly about our pain and suffering is an evidence and an expression of our faith. Not if, but when it comes. We realize, oh, God is using this struggle as a contribution to and a preparation of my eternal joy and delight. We trust that God can and that he will transform it into our everlasting joy and delight. So when that comes, to think deeply, to feel deeply, to think rightly about our God and what he is doing in our struggle. And he has sent us his spirit. The spirit is the instrument of the indestructible life, which is what God wants for Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.